<laughs> okay, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. That's where we are in our series. And, uh, you know, I probably need to say that uh, I would not preach on such a long passage, but I wanted to get through before the end of the year, of course. And uh, next Sunday, I'm preaching on Christmas, you know, and our focus is going to be on, on Christ and his birth for us. And then the following Sunday, it's the um, rest of the sixth chapter. So I am cutting a, a lot off today, and I hope you understand that. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Please let's stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, so you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as men people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them. In other words, treat them the very same way. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there be and there and that there is no partiality with him. May God bless the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the reading of your holy word, and we just pray, Heavenly Father, that by your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, that you would teach us the things that we need to understand and know. Lord, um, we just pray, Heavenly Father, that, that you would just um, have your will to be accomplished in everything that is said here today. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As I've been mentioning, you know, through this series, the book of um, Ephesians can be broken into two main sections or two main parts. And the first section is doctrine, what we're to believe, the things that God wants us to know from his word about who Christ is and what he has done for us. So it's doctrine. That's the first section. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then the second section is duty. In other words, what we're to do, how we're to behave as Christian people. You know, the kind of lives that God wants us to live. And this is chapters 4 through 6. As you well know, we're in a very practical part of the book of Ephesians that deals with the uh, Christian family. Uh, it was Martin Luther in the 1500s who called this section the house table, referring to the household duties in the Christian home, which covers 
three main areas. The duty of wives and their husbands. That's chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. The wife pleases the Lord by submitting to her husband's headship in the home. That spiritual authority that God has given to the husband. And the husband is to please the Lord by loving his wife like Jesus loves the church, like Jesus loves him. And we saw that last Sunday. And then there's the duty of children and parents, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And then the duty of slaves and masters, chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Now this morning we will look at these two areas of the Christian family. The duty of the children, the duty of the parents, and also the duty of slaves and masters. Now, I know what you're thinking already. You know, um, why are slaves included in this section on the Christian family? Well, in the first century Roman world, slaves were included in the broader family unit, even though they didn't have the privileges of, of the children in the family, but they were included in that broad family unit. I've entitled the message this morning, The Spirit-Filled Family. The Spirit-Filled Family. And the reason for this is because, you know, it, it's no accident that, um, that this section on the Christian family immediately follows the teaching on the filling of the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So the reason is really obvious to have a truly Christian family each member of the family, the parents, the children, the slaves, and the masters must be living spirit-filled lives. So this is a passage on the spirit-filled family. Well, Paul begins with the instruction with the children and the parents, the duty of children and parents in the Christian home. Well, what is the role of children in the Christian home? Well, Paul spells it out very clearly in that first verse. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And that simply means to follow their rules. I hope Stephanie and Ryan don't get too embarrassed about this, but um, uh, years ago when one of their, one of their sons uh, uh, was under the care of Cindy when, when Stephanie was um, having some health issues, and um, you know she was taking care of them, and and um, you know uh, she had certain rules, you know, to obey, and and uh, one day that um, things were not going to par, and. Um, and Cindy asked uh, Reese, she said, Reese, don't you want Mimi to stay with you and be here with you? And he said, no. <laughs> and she said, well, why? I don't like your rules. <laughs> well, children, obey your parents' rules. It, it couldn't be any clearer than that. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Obey means to follow the rules. Now, why should children obey? Well, again, it's very ob obvious. It is part of their 
Christian obedience. Obey your parents in the Lord. So when, when children obey their parents, they are in fact obeying the Lord and his authority uh, in that home and the authority that the Lord has established. But there's a second reason children are to obey, and that is it is the right thing to do. He says it is right, for this is right. You know, in every culture, in every society through history, it has been recognized as very important that children obey your parents. When it's absent, it's a sign of moral and spiritual deterioration. Obedience to parents is Disobedience to parents is one of the signs of the last times. And that's exactly what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. So Paul says it's a sign of the end times when, when children are disobedient to their parents. So not only are children to obey their parents, but they are to honor them. And that's what he says in, in, in also in verses 1, 2, and 3. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So Paul quotes the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16, which comes with a promise. And God promises to bless obedient children. Now, what is the promise? Verse 3 again, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, this statement has been misunderstood by, by many uh, in our time. You know, this is not some hard, fast promise. Uh, it's really a general principle of life. Children who honor and obey their parents often live longer and better lives than those who don't. It doesn't mean children who die early in life were disobedient to their parents, nor does it mean that children who live long lives were obedient to their parents. It's a general principle, a truism, that children who obey their parents often um, escape the dangers of life, and children who disobey their parents often endanger themselves. In other words, um, they stay away from harmful and dangerous activities, those who obey, and habits which tend to shorten life. You know, in my 40 years of ministry, I, I've seen this play out many, many times. You know, I I cannot tell you how many times I've seen young lives cut short because they lived rebellious, disobedient lives. So disobedience to parents often brings tragedy, but obedience to parents brings blessing. Now, Scripture teaches this all the way through the Bible. Listen to these verses in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 10. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. Also, Proverbs 10, verse 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. And then Proverbs 30, verse 17, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey his mother will be 
picked out by the ravens uh, of the valley and eaten by the vultures. So a person, a young person who obeys and honors his parents, um, it can change the total direction of that person's life for the good. So what is the parent's role in the Christian home? Okay. Now, I know we have some parents here. We have many grandparents here. And I think we can apply this in both cases, okay? What is the parent's role in the Christian home? We'll look at verse 4 again. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the word fathers here, uh, it, it could mean parent too. In fact, the word can be translated uh, parents as well as fathers. But I, I tend to think that Paul is focusing on fathers here who are the responsible leaders in the Christian home. Now, a little background might be helpful here because according to Roman law, and remember Paul in the first century right here, he was, he was living under Roman law. And under Roman law, the father had absolute authority over uh, his children. The father could treat his children in any way he wished. If he wanted to abuse them, that was okay. If he wanted to kill them, uh, nobody was going to do anything about it according to Roman law. Warren Wiersbe, in his little commentary, his little B-series commentary, he writes this, When a baby was born into a Roman family, for example, it was brought out and laid before the father. If he picked it up, it meant that he was accepting this child into his home. But if he didn't pick it up, it meant the child was rejected. It could be sold, it could be given away, or even killed by exposure. Now, that's the way it was in the Roman world. But here God says to Christian parents, you don't have absolute authority over your children. I do. And he says in verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, if you were a parent or you've been a parent, we've all been guilty of this. We all have. How can a parent provoke their children to anger? The word provoke means to frustrate them. How can we frustrate them? You know, it's easier than you think. It really is. Let me just kind of give you some examples. Number one, placing unrealistic expectations on your children. In other words, expecting your daughter to make straight A's when she's not a straight A student, you know. Or, you know, pushing your son to be a star athlete when, you know, he was like, like, he's like me and I was not a good athlete. Pushing your child, placing unrealistic expectations upon your children. Another way is not giving them your most important gift of all, and that is yourself. Because that's what your children need more than anything else. They need you. <laughs> they need you. Also comparing them to others. You know, saying th things like, why can't you be like your brother? Let, I'll just tell you a, a sad story. My first church in Oakdale Baptist Church, right there on the state line between South and, and North Carolina, um, there was a tragedy even before I moved in 
the Parsons. We were moving in. I got a knock on the door, and this young man, 17 years old, um, he was, he was um, coming home from school. He, he wasn't reckless. He was a model kid, not reckless anyway. He was just going down a bumpy road, and something weird happened, and he flipped over, and immediately he was, he was killed. And they wanted me to go over, and of course I did. And um, the, the poor mother was hysteric, as you can imagine. And she had another son who was in the military, and, and he was called, and he was on the way home. And um, anyway, I came several times that day and that evening into the home, and I was there when the other, when the other son arrived. And um, the mother was there, and a lot of the family and when he walked in the door, this is her words to him. Why couldn't it have been you? Now, that's extreme. I, I admit. But we must never compare one child to the other. Okay? Uh, another way is inconsistent discipline. I heard a teenager once say, I don't know what my father expects of me. Either I get away with murder or I get blamed for everything. How about favoritism? Man, that's destructive in a, in a home. And, of course, we have many biblical examples, especially in the, in the Old Testament about that. Isaac favored Esau. Rebekah favored Jacob. And it made them fierce enemies all of their lives. Jacob favored Joseph, and it drove his brothers to jealousy and violence. Favoritism. Another way we can provoke our children is criticism without praise. We need to balance criticism with praise. Yes, they need correction, but also affirmation as well. And they're making promises and not keeping them. A wise gentleman told me, a wise Christian gentleman told me once, if you promise your child a spanking, give him a spanking. If you promise him ice cream, give him ice cream. Keep your promises to your children. And then unwilling to apologize when wrong. You know, as parents, um, we all mess up, don't we? We all make mistakes. We, we all do. When we're wrong, you know, when we discipline them in the wrong way, maybe out of anger. We need to apologize. And, and when we do that, you know what we're doing? We're teaching them a very important lesson. We're teaching them to apologize when they are wrong. Once a lady said to me, I'd rather die than apologize to my children. That's a good way to provoke them to anger. That's a good way to frustrate them. Well, that's the negative. Do not provoke your children to anger. You know, you can, be a, you can be a good Christian and not so good a father. You can be a, a, a good Christian and not so good a parent. One of my favorite professors in seminary was Dr. Howard Hendricks. Uh, he was, without a doubt, the most gifted Bible teacher I've ever heard. He was greatly loved by his students affectionately known as Prof. That's what we call him, Prof. And he was a godly Christian man, no question about it. He died a few years ago. You can tell if you're getting old because all your teachers are dead. 
And that's true of almost all of my professors in, in seminary. Well, he died a few years ago. And I watched his funeral that was streamed live from his church in Dallas. His two sons spoke at their dad's funeral. The first son spoke of their, his father's um, gift of teaching, the wonderful gift he had, his love for the Word of God, and also about his severe bouts of depression that he suffered most of his adult life. The second son spoke very personally and honestly about his father as a dad. Prof was raised in a very dysfunctional home where there was no clear father figure growing up. And he really didn't know how to be a good dad. This son closed his message by, by saying this. I know many of you who were his students looked at my dad and said, man, I wish I was half the communicator he was. I wish I was half the teacher he was. He said, but if my father was here today and if he could speak, he would say to many of you, I wish you were half the father. I wished I was half the father you are. Man, you can be a Christian. You can be a Christian man. You can be a good Christian man and not be such a good father. So the question is, what are the marks of a good father? What, what are the good marks of, of a good parent? You know, we've seen the negative, okay? Don't provoke your children to anger. Now, what is the positive? But bring them up, verse 4, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's look at a few words here, okay? The first is bring them up. That, that literally means to nourish, to feed. John Calvin translates it, let them be cherished. You know, we, we, we need to treat our children tenderly at all seasons in their life. When they're infants, when they're toddlers, when they're youngsters, when they're teenagers, even when they're adult sons and daughters. All our children are grown up all of them, with their own family. But they aren't too big and they aren't too old for me to hug and kiss them. And I'm going to do that to the day I die. Bring them up. Nurture them. Feed them. And then the word discipline. Discipline means to train, including correction and punishment. It's the very same word that that the author of Hebrews uses in Hebrews 12 to refer to our Heavenly Father's discipline in our lives. Also, Proverbs 19, verse 18 says, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Wow. Of course, all discipline needs to be done in love, never harshly, always in self-control. You know, Cindy did most of the discipline in our home. Our kids would bow to that, I'm sure. She never said, you know, wait till your father gets home. She never said that. Most of our kids got in trouble at the same time. That's right. Either at the grocery store or somewhere else. 
And they all needed spankings at the same time. Isn't that true? Yeah, it is true. And what Cindy would do, Cindy would line them up in the hall, okay, in our home in Alcala. She would line them up in the hall, and one at a time, she would march them into the bathroom, and she would wail her mighty weapon of discipline, a paint paddle, and let them have it. I asked her not long ago, do you still have that broken paint paddle? You know, she said, I can't find it. You know. Discipline. You know. So many kids aren't getting it today, and they need to have that discipline because it creates security in their lives. It puts boundaries there for them. And then instruction. Instruction refers to verbal instruction. Uh, Children have the responsibility to obey their parents. Parents have the responsibility to teach them to obey. Did you know you don't have to teach your children to disobey? They already know that. They learned that from Adam. Okay? They inherited it from him. The most important instruction parents can give their children is Jesus. That's what they need. Just give them Jesus. That's what all our children need. Teach them about life, yes. Teach them to play ball. Teach them to hunt and fish. Teach them to play golf. Teach them to drive. All that's good. But don't neglect the main thing. Teach them about Jesus. Because it all begins in the home. It doesn't begin here in the church. We are to reinforce uh, the home, but it begins in the home. They aren't going to get into schools. It all begins in the home. And if they don't get it in the home, most likely they're not going to get it at all. Teach them about Jesus. Teach them about the incarnation, what Christmas is all about. That that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. Teach them about that. Teach them about his death on the cross, how it paid for sin fully and completely. Teach them about his resurrection, how he bodily rose again from the dead in a glorified body. Teach them about his coming again, that he's coming to take us to heaven and to make all things new. Teach them about sin, that we're all sinners and and we have great need for a Savior. Teach them about repentance and faith in Christ that makes us new creatures in Jesus Christ. I love the story that I heard years ago about uh, the late pastor, Adrian Rogers. Uh, he told about his first son when he was born. They returned from the hospital with their newborn baby, and they placed him in the crib in the nursery. And um, he walked into the room with his little boy, and he started um, sharing Jesus with his newborn son. Oh, he was telling him about God's love and sending Jesus to die for his sins and the fact that he was raised again from the dead. And and if he would only put his trust in Jesus, that God would save him and give him eternal life. Well, his wife walked in about that time and she said, Adrian, what in the world are you doing? Our baby doesn't understand a word you're saying. He said, I know. But I never want there to be a time when I didn't tell him about Jesus. 
Parents, give your children Jesus. That's the best gift you can give them. Give them Jesus. Also, teach them the Bible. You know, I think of young Timothy. Uh, He didn't have a Christian father. The Bible says his father was a Greek. He was not a Christian, but he had a godly mother and grandmother. And they taught him the scriptures from a little child, from an infant, a toddler, just a small child. That tells me you can't start too early to teach your children the Word of God. You know, the Bible isn't a series of unrelated stories. It's one grand narrative from Genesis to Revelation that tells God's story of redemption in Jesus Christ. In her book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones writes this, and I'm going I'm to give you a long quotation, but listen to what she says. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and, and what you should be doing. It's about God and what um, he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people who should cop, uh, you should copy. The Bible, doesn't have, the Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you will soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and, and run away at times. They are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all of the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. You know, that's why I'm sold on the gospel project that we have here in Sunday school because it tells the whole story of God rescuing us from sin through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is in every book from Genesis to Revelation. Fathers, you are the priest in your home. You're responsible to give them Jesus. Well, that's the duty of parents. That's the duty of the children in the Christian home. Well, how about the duty of slaves and masters? Well, as I mentioned, in the Roman world, slaves were seen as a part of that household. You know, John Stott, in his commentary, says that there are around 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire in Paul's day. 60 million. And as many as a third of the population of large cities, such as Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, you know, they were slaves. Roman slavery in the first century was far different from African slavery in this country. 
slaves under Roman law could count on eventually being set free. Very few ever reached the age of uh, old age as slaves. Fifty percent of slaves were free before the age of thirty. Slaves could own property, could purchase their own freedom. Slaves had very little to do with social class. You could hardly distinguish a slave from a free person in the first century world. A slave could be teachers, they could be doctors, they could be tutors, they could be salesmen, they could be most anything. In the church, some slaves were church leaders and teachers and spiritual authority over their own masters. Now, the New Testament in no way condones slavery. In fact, if you apply and obey, if the people in that day would apply and obey Paul's words here, there would be no slavery at all. It would be a relationship of love and mutual respect. In fact, the New Testament, the Gospels, Christianity in general was instrumental in the abolition of slavery. Now, we must understand these verses in the context of the time. You know, Paul was dealing with life as it was in the first century Rome, where slavery was legal and is accepted by law and society. And what he is saying is simply this, and please don't miss this. You can live for Jesus no matter the social environment you find yourself in. You can live for Jesus. And, and folks, the same is true today. You can live for Jesus under capitalism. You can live for Jesus under socialism. You can live for Jesus under communism. I mean, there are brothers and sisters in Christ in, in China and India and North Korea and throughout the world who are living for Jesus even though they are oppressed. And Christians who lived in the first century Rome world could live for Jesus under this institution of slavery. And he tells them how. Now, of course, we know that slavery no longer exists. So the question is, how do we best apply this passage and these verses to us today? And I believe that they apply to the employee-employer relationship, or you might say the worker-boss relationship. I think it does apply. And I'm going to be very quick through this and just kind of sum it up for you, some of the principles that we see here. What is the duty of the Christian worker? Well, they are to obey their employer. Why? Well, he gives us three reasons. Number one, the worker is actually serving Christ. Again, verse 5, bond servants, or you might say workers, obey your earthly masters or employers with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. In other words, at your job, you're really working for Jesus. You aren't really working for man. You're working for Jesus. And understanding that changes everything. Now, I want you to think, before we wrap this up, what was the worst job you've ever had in life? Just think about it. What was the worst job you ever had growing up? Or maybe um, right now. What's the worst job? Well, in college, we were given college service assignments. And once a week, this was my job, 
My job was to clean the men's toilets on our dorm floor, our hall. You know, I could have been a star in the TV series, series Dirty Jobs. I, I, could have been, I could have been a star in that. Every Monday, I said, hot dog, I get to clean the toilets. You know, that, was, that was my job. Now, it's one thing to clean the toilets in your home. There's another thing to clean the toilets used by 24 nasty guys. You know, uh, that's a different story altogether. But, you know, if Jesus had come up to me and asked me to clean those dirty toilets, I would have, it would have changed everything. If Jesus said, Norman, I want you to clean these dirty toilets, you know, that would have changed everything. I would do the very best I could. No cutting corners because Jesus was asking me to do it. And in reality, that's exactly what Jesus was asking me to do. I was doing it for him. So when you do your job, whether it's at the workplace or or maybe it's just serving right here at church, remember you're doing it for Jesus. You're doing it for him. And that changes everything. Secondly, working hard is the will of God, verses 6 and 7. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, with, with a good will as the Lord and uh, as to the Lord and not to man. So working hard not only pleases your boss, but it pleases God, your big boss. It pleases him, your Lord. It not only, only, it not only makes your boss happy, it makes God happy. And then thirdly, working hard will be rewarded by God. It says in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. So your hard work, it might not be recognized down here. It might not be rewarded down here. You might not get that raise you think you deserve down here, but your faithful work will be rewarded in heaven. You know, Roy and Debbie gave me this little hanging years ago, and it simply says, working for the Lord doesn't pay much, but the retirement plan is out of this world. And I like that. That's so true. So you might not get the nod down here in your work, but you'll certainly get it in heaven. I promise you that. And what is the duty of the employer? Okay? The employer, the boss. You know, what's his or her uh, duty? Number one, treat your workers the way you want to be treated. That's what he says in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Do the same to them. And number two, one day you will give an account to God. That says in verse 9, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there be no partiality with him. How would you describe your home life? Just think about that as we close together. How would you describe your home life? You know, as a husband, Are you loving your wife like Jesus loves the church? As a wife, are you submitting to your husband's authority 
as your spiritual head in the home. Children, are you obeying your parents? Parents, are you bringing up your children in the discipline of the Lord and the instruction of the Lord? What does your home life look like? I'm telling you, my friends, if we have a spiritually filled home life, this would be the home life that we would have that Paul describes right here. Let's pray together.